Jacob, thank you again, brother. I don't know where you went. Rasmussen. Wherever you went. Piano man. What were you doing when you were 17? I was playing guitar. My mom reminded me. Yes, I was playing guitar. The classical volumes of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Bad Love Songs. Thank you, brother, for blessing us with that. Uh, We're back in Romans now in chapter 5. Paul makes a transition here. We're leaving the life of Abraham and entering into the implications of the gospel. Paul caps his argument off with Abraham. Of course, there are many Jewish listeners in the small church in Rome, and he has sought to show us something beautiful and powerful. And that's why he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed to the Jew first and then the Greek from faith and to faith. This gospel, this good news, is what Paul has been arguing for from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 4. To show us that his central thesis stands precisely this. That we are justified, we are put in the right before the righteousness of God, his covenant justice, not by our works, but by faith. And that is incredible. And that must make us sing. That is so different than what the world offers. Be better. Be smarter. Manage thine image. Earn more money. Be more beautiful. Work harder. You never get to sit down. You never get to rest. It is never finished. You are never finished. You're never quite enough. And so when Paul reminds us that because it is finished in Christ, that we are enough in the love of God the Father, that we are in the right, not based on what we feel or how we look or even what you did last week, but on the grounds of Christ, we have a new status as sons and daughters. That is good news. And he wants to take four chapters now, five, six, seven, and eight, to explore and unravel and unwrap the gift of the implications of the gospel of Jesus being alive in our souls. That's where we're headed. Two weeks ago, I was at General Assembly. Some of you know that. It's the National Annual Assembly of our denomination. I like to call it Pastor Con. You know, it's like Comic Con. Everybody dresses up in their best pastor outfit. There are as I say, more khakis per capita at GA than at any other place in the world at any other time. It's just khakis and blue blazers, and we're doing it this morning, John. Same thing. Um, It's really a wonderful time, though, to network and be with people, and we have worship services. You can't just do business. You've got to worship together, and at the first worship service on the first night, we began to sing the song, Crown Him with Many Crowns, Surrounded by a Sea of brothers, sisters, men, women, and children, pastors, elders, and the like. And as we sang this song, crown him with many crowns, I I closed my eyes. And this doesn't happen very often, but as I closed my eyes, I kind of got this vision of heaven, a vision straight out of John's apocalypse, straight out of the book of Revelation, so I'm not being too weird here. But in this 
vision, I, I see before me the glassy sea, the nations gathered, every tribe and tongue and people, different ages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. And it was as, as if I could see the army of the Lord marching into the throne room of God with smiles on their face and cries of victory. And then beyond the sea was the throne where we're told was seated the conqueror, the king, the lion and the lamb. It was kind of one of those weird deals where like a computer screen flickers in and out, images of lion and lamb. And as I stood there, I could hear the words that John gives us in Revelation, where the lion and the lamb say, come, come to me, you who are weary. Come to me, you who are good at faking it. Come to me, you who are tired. Come to me, you who have things in your lives that you cannot control, that are spiling out of control, who have shame, who have hurt, who have wounds. Come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The lion and the lamb say, come. Now, I don't often get emotional when I'm standing in a room full of khaki pants, nor when I'm singing an old hymn, but I, I had this deep sense of peace wash over me. And I've lived enough life and I'm jaded enough to not go seeking the experience that lasts for 10 seconds and then is gone. But do you relate to that? It's a joy when God gives us those things. What a joy when God just meets you in a moment of worship or a moment of prayer. And I mean, I just had a sense of peace and freedom. Oh, the peace and freedom that I long for. Just a sense of being light as a feather and hearing the words of the Lord say to me, come. This is the peace that we long to maintain in our lives, isn't it? So, so much of what we do and don't do is a striving for this peace. If you go into a bookstore, and I've heard those still exist, if it makes you go to the Amazon warehouse, you will find millions of books under the section of self-help that are designed to help you help yourself to be enough to find peace. Way more than the history books or the poetry books or the science books. Rows and rows of promises for peace. We want financial peace. We want to post something that's great and people like it enough times so that just enough dopamine is released so that just for a minute we feel peace. We look at our kids and we love them and we long for them to grow up and to know that they are loved by Jesus, not religiously, but in Christ. We want peace for our children and our grandchildren. Some of you Pray for your children and your grandchildren and for their peace and the peace of Christ in them more than anything else, as you should. We want peace in our workplace. If you're not the boss, you wish your boss was a bit more peaceful. If you are the boss, you wish that people would bring a little bit more peace into your world. Some wake up every morning when you stand in the mirror. What you see before you reflects a lack of peace. If only you had the power of Photoshop in your hand, or perhaps a, an airbrush. If only we could curate ourselves into what we would deem sufficient, we might have peace. 
And this is what Paul is turning us toward as he finishes the argument of Romans 1 through 4. Notice that great little word that pastors love, therefore. When you see a therefore, you need to ask what it's. Mm, Yes, church people. I knew we had some church people in here that would know that one. What is it there for? What is Paul doing? It reminds me of the TV show Lost. Did anyone ever watch Lost? Such a great show, but like after the first season, you were totally lost. The writers had no idea what they were doing. And years later, they admitted that after the pilot and that initial narrative arc, they were just making it up as they went along. Which is why Lost left you deeply unsatisfied in the end. You know, the deus ex machina, jumping of the shark, like, oh, they were all in heaven. Thanks for tying a bow on that one. And everything, sorry if I ruined it for you, and everything was left unanswered. Well, Paul's not doing that. This isn't, this isn't his version of the TV show, Loss. He's not making up as he's going along. Nor is he writing a few short essays on what he believes to be the important theological loci relevant to the church in his day. No, from Romans 1 to 16. There is a sweep of thought and argument that should leave us breathless and in awe of the glory of God in Christ. Which is why Paul himself in Romans has to stop himself at least twice to take a break from the glory. It's overwhelming. And he bursts out into the song we just sang, the doxology. Not literally that, but at least twice, he's so overwhelmed by God's goodness in this unwinding and unfolding of the beauty of the gospel that he bursts into praise. So his argument is that we are in the right and justified by faith. Faith is the instrument or vehicle by which we get Jesus. It is sufficient. It is not by our works. And even faith itself is a gift from God. And because of what we believe that God has done, we are now righteous before the Father. So, Not merely your sins forgiven, although that would be incredible. And again, this is why the gospel is for Christians. Bro, this is why the gospel is for us. Not just, oh, I prayed the prayer when I was 12. Well, that's good. We shouldn't despise that. But the gospel is for us every day. David says, new mercies. Because not only are our sins forgiven... But we have been given or imputed or credited to us the full righteousness of Christ. So that when the Father looks upon you in your ups and in your downs as you're growing like the stock market, up and down and up and down. When God looks at you, he sees the full righteous glory and power and goodness and moral perfection and victory of Jesus, his son. What could that possibly mean for us? What does that mean when you go back to work tomorrow or get in your car and attempt to drive during tourist season? The Lord bless you all. You better have like 15 St. James on your dash for Sutter and Santa Fe. Here's what it means. Paul begins with this implication and it's the main point. We have peace with God. Brothers and sisters, we have peace with God. It's so good. It's so good. So if this seems like, you know, an emotive gushing sermon where we just revolve around the beauty of Jesus. Amen. We have peace with God. We have now the status and the legal grounds, irretractable, 
unconditional of sons and daughters of the living God. So even your circumstances that are bearing down upon you, and even your own heart that betrays you, you, you know, all you are just as crazy as me. You get the voice in your head. You, weren't, you were doing just fine, and then all of a sudden, fear popped on you. Where did that come from? You were doing just fine that day, and then you put your head down on the pillow, and you got anxious. Where in the world did that come from? Regardless of our circumstances, internal or external, we have been placed on the solid rock. So, three ways I want to look at this this morning, because you have to. Number one, what is this peace we're talking about? Number two, our peace rejoices even in our suffering. And number three, what God's love did to purchase peace. So what is this peace? Peace that rejoices even in our suffering, which I struggle to believe. And let's look at what God love, God's love did to purchase this peace. First of all, what peace are we talking about? We need to clear a few things up because especially in our city and in our age, 2019, and sort of the zeitgeist of the culture that we live in, the water we swim in here is fish. There's this thing about inner peace. And you must understand that Paul, although not despising the feeling of inner peace, is not primarily speaking to us about an inner feeling of peace that we need to somehow sustain. The only way to sustain a feeling of inner peace is to escape the world. To detach yourself from the world. And you should start with detaching yourself from relationships. Because relationships are beautiful and wonderful, but they are hard. And they are able to disturb the peace. Paul says, if you try to find inner peace, a feeling of inner peace, as the basis and grounds for peace, you'll have to flee the world, and you can't. Even if you climb to the top of the hill in the temple and sit down and try to forget all of it and, and empty yourself, it's never enough. We know that. I was talking to a friend this week, and he gave me some thoughts to share paraphrased in the form of a quote. This is an older brother that I meet with from time to time. He's lived a great life. He's been, quote, successful in the world's eyes. Consider him a mentor in many ways. And in this last phase of his life, in this retirement of his, he is not retiring, but he is spending his life on Jesus. But as he often says to me, he has less runway in his life than I do. He said this, Greg, you can have a lot of things. And things are good. I want you all to do really well and have nice things and then give it to the kingdom. You can have a lot of things. You can have good parties and nice people, fine glasses of wine and good games of golf. But at the end of the day, when your runway gets short, if you don't have the peace of God's grace, if you don't have the peace of knowing God's grace, that this life, our life, isn't all there is, but a beautiful stop, on the way of the journey of eternal life. And what do you do in the face of death? You might be able to overpower or overpleasure all the distractions. But death cannot be avoided. You may seek to suppress these feelings or outfun the ticking clock. But we know that none of those things work. And none of them provides the peace our souls long for. 
So Paul would have us know this isn't primarily a feeling of inner peace. And we know that because he goes immediately to language that is external or extrinsic from feelings. It's not about inner peace. It's about peace with God. The war of our works has ceased. And God is outside of us, and he has come to us on account of what he has done to offer peace. This is good news, folks. You understand, if this wasn't true, y'all should get a new religion. I mean, not too soon, because daddy's got to eat, but get a new religion for yourself if this isn't true. If peace is about you being enough, or you feeling like you're enough, or you perceiving yourself as enough in that moment to have achieved peace, that is not good news. There is no gospel there. No, we can't analyze it enough. We can't control it enough to keep for ourselves the peace that we need. It also can't come from finite external things, good as they are. Hey, I know some of us go out and enjoy some retail therapy from time to time. We have our coping mechanisms. They're not all sinful. God designed you to feel a little hit of dopamine when you click that Amazon button. That's not sin, but it's also not sustainable. It's not true peace, and we know it. Feels good for a minute, and then it's gone. No, Paul says, it's only the hope of glory that can sustain our peace. Something that is both eternal and infinite and perpetually moving toward us in our need. That which cannot fade. That which is finished. It is finished. Jesus says. And one of the benefits of this peace, what peace? Paul shows us we now have access to God the Father. And I love this truth. I love this truth. It's, it's very hard for us to remember because of how kind of not culturally Jewish we are, but Paul was, and many of his hearers in Rome were. Remember Paul himself was a Jewish scholar. Remember Harry's sermon last week? We are sons and daughters of Abraham, God has made you Jewish, not ethnically so, but he's grafted you in to the promise of his people who are chosen. We forget how Jewish Paul was. And so we hear the word access and we go, oh, that's neat. And you think about a credit card, you know, and the little slider card and the door opens. That's not what Paul's getting at. This is clearly temple language. So when you go back to read the Old Testament, remember, creation, all is good. Fall, we are broken. Redemption. So even when you get into Leviticus and you are very tempted to put that one year Bible down until next January 1st, you have to remember that Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all, all the law was about God's people who were already in the covenant, saved, being purified so that they might enter into the presence of God. So both the tabernacle and the temple had layers. There was the outer court. There was the inner court. There was the holy place. And then there was the most holy place. And in the most holy place, behind a curtain that would have been about the size of this cross window, a huge, thick curtain. Behind that curtain in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. And one man was allowed to enter once a year, the high priest of God. They tied a rope to his ankle in case he died. They'd have to pull him out. And once a year, he would go in and he would sprinkle blood over the Ark of the Covenant as a forgiveness of sins on the Day of Atonement. 
One man could go in once a year. And the people waited outside, having engaged in ritual baths and purification, hoping and praying that as this priest had access to God, God would grant that access and bless his people. Now, we don't take God that seriously sometimes, that he is the king, that he is sovereign. And yet we know that when Jesus died, also spread out like the curtain of God upon the earth, it was torn in two. And we now have access as sons and daughters to God. Here's how I want you to think about that access. If you want to meet with me, I probably want to meet with you. We got to make an appointment. And we can make an appointment anytime. People are like, oh, you're so busy. Yes, so are you. Shoot me an electronic mailing system, MS-DOS, and we will meet. That's what I love to meet with you guys. But if you want to meet, there's an appointment. Not so with my kids. When my kids come to the church, they don't stop at the front desk. They don't double check with Sylvia. They don't care if I've got the, the black shroud above my door, which says studying for the sermon. They just burst right in. They burst right into my office. They start tinkering with all my stuff. They hug me. They give me a kiss. They jump on my lap. Y'all try to jump on my lap, we're going to have issues. They call a prayer meeting if you try to jump on my lap. But why? Why do they have that kind of access? You know, it's because they're my kids. It's true with your children and grandchildren too. I could be sitting right here talking to the most important person in the room. And if one of my daughters comes up and has a real need and pulls on my jacket, you better believe I'm turning around, getting down on one knee and to find out what they need because they're my child and they are my child. So they have that kind of access to me. So when you think about Paul using this temple imagery about the access we now have as children of God, children of God on the same status as Jesus is a child of God. We are brought in as brothers and sisters with his full benefits, his full inheritance, his full name, everything Jesus has as the child of God we have, including access to God that is on the level of little kids bursting into your office without a care in the world to wrap their arms around your neck. That's the kind of peace we have. And that's why that's good news. Good news that comes to us from outside of us, for us, and cannot be taken away. That's why our peace rejoices even in our suffering. You know, just in between services, I was praying for someone who is in a very difficult medical situation. And so I have to say right here, Paul is not being cute. Paul is not getting ready to open up a Hallmark store in Rome. Paul's not getting ready to sell a variety of Christian bookmarks, you know, at the ladies' tea. He's not being cute. He knows how scandalous this sounds because Paul knows that we suffer. He knows that life is full of suffering, and he knows it well himself. By the time that Paul has penned the letter to Rome, he's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's been mocked, He's been kicked out of cities. He's been threatened with death. And still, he says, he bears the anxiety for the churches and no doubt the satanic condemnation whispering in his ear the shame of his former life and persecution. And you know what Paul does get to Rome? But Paul gets to Rome eventually 
through suffering. He longs to see the Jew and the Gentile reconciled so that they might be healthy, so that when he comes to Rome, the healthy bride of Christ might give birth to his mission in the world and send him to Spain. But before Paul gets to Rome, guess what? He goes to Jerusalem. They beg him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you for sure. But Paul wants to fulfill the life and ministry of Jesus. And as Christ died and was resurrected, Paul considers it a glory. He goes to Jerusalem knowing this will be the beginning of the end. And it is. He's arrested. He meets with Felix, Festus, claims the citizenship, and eventually he gets to Rome in chains. Eventually he gets to Rome in suffering. And so this scandalous statement that the peace we now have with God means we can rejoice in our sufferings, means that as suffering mocks us, we turn around and mock suffering because we have a hope that is greater, a hope that can never be taken away. This is Paul's crushing the idols of entitlement under his feet. How deeply we know these idols in our day. I've worked hard. I've paid my dues. I deserve to be happy. I deserve peace. I deserve this great and easy life that I've procured because I've done it. Paul says no. And yet he's merciful to those who are suffering. Rejoice? How can we rejoice when the pain that we feel is real? And, and you may look around, we all do this, right? And go, okay, other people have it worse. All right, bless your heart. We know that. We know other people have it worse. But what you feel as pain for you is real for you. And it's real and God cares about it. And God doesn't look at you and go, oh, why are you complaining again? Other people have it worse. Instead, he allows us to ask the question of Romans 5. I love this question because Paul says, look, and you know this, God will be faithful. God will, will persevere you through the suffering. It'll become character. Character will blossom up into hope. And yet, did you see what Paul allows those of us who are weak and those of us who are suffering to do? But what if, Paul? Okay, I, I believe but, but help my unbelief. What, what if, Paul? What if hope? What if hope puts me to shame? You see, this is our great fear. It's one thing to know the capital T truths of the Bible, that we can rejoice in our suffering because Jesus, the faithful and true Israelite, who is now seated at God's right hand, will continue to be faithful to us. Jesus is in heaven all day, every day, praying for you, his children, so that not one will be lost. We know that in theory, but we still ask this question. It's our deepest question. Okay, if I walk by faith, if I take the step, if I trust you, Jesus, will hope put me to shame? And the good news is that the, the invitation of the lion and the lamb says, come here too. We need each other most in our suffering. Most when we feel like not going to church or detaching or oh, I'm kind of not doing well right now and I don't really want you to see that part of me, so I'm going to kind of back away. That's when we are most invited to come. Why? Because look at what God's love did to purchase this peace for us. Now, Romans is a watertight argument and Paul is 
an employer of a variety of Greco-Roman logical mechanisms. Here he uses this argument from the lesser to the greater. Look at what God's love did. So you get to ask that question, will hope put me to shame? But when you ask that question, don't look in the mirror. Don't look at your circumstances. Look up to the cross of Christ, Paul says. If he sent his son, his one and only son, to die for you, and then to give his life for you, if God did everything to get you to himself, how much more? Paul uses the phrase several times in our text. How much more? He says, still we were weak. Still we were sinners. Look, you, you, you think you care about justice? Simmer down, bro. Sell everything you have and do something about it. You think you care about, oh, I'm going to help all the people of the world. Yeah, we do. But you know what? For, for a righteous person, you might dare to lay down your own life. If it was your own kid, maybe. For a righteous person, you might dare. But let's be real. The nature of, of us is self-preservation. God says, I didn't seek to pervert, preserve myself. Instead, I emptied myself that you might have peace. And not while you were doing it. God didn't look down and go, oh, look at these church people. They're having such a great day. Look at all those pretty pastel colors. They're doing so good. No, while you were still weak, while you were still trapped in sin, dead, heart of stone, God doesn't look at you and your deadness and say, all right, get up, come to me. Come on now. Come over here, come to me, and peace awaits you. Instead, he sees you in your deadness and he flies to you with the power to raise a life from the dead. Talk about this a lot when I do marriage counseling, right? It's not 50-50. And so then you always have the guy in the room who's like, oh, it's not 50-50, babe. It'll be 100-100. I do 100, you do 100, and we'll be good. No, it's not 50-50. It's not even 100-100. It's 100-0. That's grace. Grace is 100-0. Grace is while you were still weak. Dead in your sins and trespasses, Christ died for the ungodly, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, because he wanted to bring his children to himself. So family, hear Paul's argument. If you were justified at such great cost, will God ever leave you? Will he ever forsake you? Will he ever remove you from the unshakable grounds of the peace you have in Christ, a peace that transcends understanding? And the answer is no. Now, I gave you the first part of my little vision from General Assembly, where there were naked floating babies with harps wearing khaki. Now, the new heavens and the new earth, embodied souls gathered around the throne of God to be unleashed on a new world and a new garden, unable to sin like our first parents. But there was another part of that vision I didn't share. Not only did a peace overwhelm me as I looked to the throne, lion and lamb say, come. But I, I felt and saw about my own life that those things I regret, and yeah, there are some things that I've said and done that I regret. I thought about my own insufficiencies. I thought about the places where I do, like you, hide shame. And in my vision, all of that stuff was just stripped away. It fell to the floor 
I was truly free. At the same time, out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone, an old friend, many years ago, we got into a dispute, both Christians, but we never reconciled. Tried a little, I tried a little, it never really worked. Now we don't talk, we don't social media each other. I think we both know in the bottom of our souls that there's still a brokenness and a divide there. Even after we've asked forgiveness and all of that kind of thing, sometimes it's very difficult to repair a broken relationship. And I quarter my eye, I turned and I saw this guy and we ran up to each other and we hugged each other. Tears streaming down our faces. We were confessing our sin to one another. We were reconciled to Christ. We were reconciled to each other. This is what awaits us in the peace of God. The peace was purchased by the love of God in the past by Christ. The peace is ours now. The assurance of that peace is ours now because of the love of God through the Holy Spirit. But all the broken things and the bad things will come untrue. And the peace that reconciles us to God and to one another will be ours forever, one day, amen. Because we have peace with God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we sing as we worship, that you would from time to time fill our hearts with such great visions from the scripture of what it will be like someday to stand before you free, free of the things that we hide, free of our pain, free of broken relationships, free of thinking about ourselves too much, free to stand in a place of wholeness and self-forgetfulness, being completely transformed by your glory, the hope of glory, perfect peace. We thank you that even as we continue to struggle through life, the great implication of the gospel starts with this. We have peace with God. I pray you would make it real upon us. In Christ's name, amen.